covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball. It's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. We do welcome you into another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. We are powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. It is great to have you with us for another week's worth of uh, Brewers-related talk. And we've got a lot coming up here in the next hour or so. As always, a few housekeeping items to take care of. Uh, if you do listen to the podcast via Apple Podcast and want to leave a ranking and review of the podcast, that would be awesome. Also, uh, subscribe via Apple Podcast or iTunes, whatever you call it. Uh, the more people who subscribe helps. Uh, all that helps move up like the rankings and people find us and all that sort of stuff and more people listen to the podcast and that's the whole uh, idea of this thing and we continue to see the numbers which are pretty darn good so thank you to everybody who is listening on an every week basis also if you need to get in contact with me multiple ways to do so you can always tweet at me at matt Pauley on air m-a-t-t-p-a-u-l-e-y on air is the twitter handle or drop me an email if you would like matt.pauley at WTMJ.com. I always try to get back to folks on email and on Twitter. Sometimes I realize I did not get back to somebody, and I apologize. It's not uh, it's not my strong suit, I guess you could say. So it's something that I'm working on, making sure that I always get back to folks. And also, I always say this. I've had a few people say, hey, why didn't you respond? Uh, if you tweet at me during the course of our postgame show on WTMJ Radio, I take that as a question for air, so I respond to it on the air as opposed to actually tweeting back. So there's some of the uh, inside look at the Twitter and email etiquette of Matt Pauley. All right, here's what we got coming up on the program this week. Our social media conversation is going to uh, feature uh, one of our very frequent guests on the program. Kyle Lesneski is going to join us this week. He is the managing editor over at Brew Crew Ball. He also contributes to uh, BP Milwaukee, a couple of our uh, favorite sites to uh, check out and also have folks from here uh, on the podcast. And uh, when we go down on the farm, we are going to bring in the uh, the voice, the radio broadcaster of the Carolina Mud against the high A affiliate of the Brewers. Uh, Greg Young is set to join us later on in the program. We'll also give you our headlines of the week coming up in uh, just a few moments. As we do start off the program, though, want to touch on a couple things, and we'll mention them during our headlines, but uh, I want to give a little bit more time to each of these things. Uh, first off, Orlando Arcia uh, sent back to AAA on Sunday, and he's just he's having a hard time getting it together from an offensive standpoint. Give him credit, by the way. Before I get into any criticisms of him, give him a lot of credit that as he has dealt with these offensive struggles and has already been sent down to AAA once, it has seemingly not impacted his defense whatsoever. And that's really a credit to him. I can't tell you how often guys are struggling in one area of their game and the struggle eventually affects other areas of their game. Arcia did not allow the offensive struggles to affect his defense, so good on him. With Orlando Arcia not on the roster, the team takes a defensive hit. There's nobody else on the team that can play defense at shortstop the way Arcia plays it. Uh, there's it's It's not even close. That's not me throwing other guys under the bus, that's me saying that Arcia is as good of a defensive shortstop that is walking the face of the earth right now. You are going to absolutely 
uh, lose something from the defensive standpoint, whether it's Brad Miller, whether it's Ernan Perez, Eric Sogard, Tyler Saladino should be back sooner than later. Whoever we're talking about, no matter how good or bad we might view them in terms of being defensive shortstops, they're not Orlando Arcia. So you are going to take a hit from a defensive standpoint. But you need to get something offensively from Orlando Arcia. You have to get something. I'm not asking for a ton. I'm not saying this guy needs to repeat the 270 season that he had last year. But being a 197 hitter who has struck out in 51 of his 203 at-bats this year, has an on-base of 231, a slugging percentage of 251, an OPS of 482, that's not enough. No matter how good your defense is, that is quite simply not enough. Had some people ask me on Twitter and also uh, text in on the uh, text line that we have at WTMJ, why is Eric Sogard still on the roster when Orlando Arcia isn't? And you look at Sogard and the fact that he's hitting now 137. The answer to that question is really simple. First off, the status of Eric Sogard going forward is probably going to be very much up in the air, especially when Tyler Saladino returns to the club. But that doesn't even matter for what I'm about to say. Eric Sogard's the 25th man on the roster, essentially. He's a backup middle infielder who you have for defense. Now, I'm not saying what he's doing with the bat is acceptable. It's not. He's not doing his job right now, and he needs to be better than a 137 hitter. But the importance of Eric Sogard to this roster is not this huge, great, impactful sort of deal. He's 25th guy, backup middle infielder. Whatever you get out of him is a little bit bonus. Orlando Arcia is a lot more than that. Orlando Arcia is supposed to be your starting everyday shortstop. And you need, you absolutely need him to swing it a little bit better. It'd be nice if Eric Sogard could swing it a little bit better, but you don't need him to. There are other options, and there will be other options in terms of that backup middle infield position. Orlando Arcia is a lot more than that. So the reason you would send down an Arcia and not send down a Sogard or not designate a Sogard is because of the different expectations that you have for the two guys. Eric Sogard's not going to be anything more than a backup middle infielder. That's what he is. I'm not trying to put him down. That's his spot on the roster. Orlando Arcia is supposed to be the starting everyday shortstop. you got to get him right offensively. And I don't know if he'll get right offensively this year. I have confidence that he'll get right offensively at some point in time. I think you look at his track record uh, in the course of his minor league career, not that he was ever a, a great hitter in the minor leagues, but he was good enough. He was a top prospect in the organization. We saw what he did last year. I guess when you look into the advanced metrics, you can see uh, there was some luck that went along with uh, his batting average last year. We've talked about how Ryan Braun is one of the unluckiest hitters in baseball based off you know, contact uh, speed, exit velocity, uh, launch angle, all that sort of stuff. This hit should be a hit. You know, this contact should be a hit something percent of times and for Braun this year it's come up empty. Well, last year, kind of using all those same numbers, Arcia was a very lucky hitter. 
but I still think he's going to be an adequate hitter at the big league level. He hits 240. He hits 250. He drops the strikeouts down. He's got the ability to move a runner over, all that sort of stuff. His defense more than takes care of uh, what you might not get offensively because he's not hitting 270, 280, 290, whatever it might be. And he has had the knack of being a somewhat clutch hitter. Uh, Not so much recently, but just overall of his not so many hits, good percentage of them have been pretty big hits. Uh, there continues to be a lot of interest in Noah Syndergaard. By the way, Kyle Lesniewski is going to join us in a little bit, and we're going to get his take on Orlando RC and get his take on the Syndergaard stuff as well. So uh, make sure to be tuned in for that. But uh, the the interest in Noah Syndergaard, and there was a report coming out in New York that the Brewers are very much engaged with the Mets on a possible Syndergaard trade. It's a really it's an interesting thing for me when you look at the potential impact it has on the organization. And I said potential impact it has on the organization. I did not say potential impact it has on the 25-man roster, on the current big league roster, on the current big league team. I think you do need to look at it from a huge, entire organization standpoint. David Stearns has made it very clear that he's going to come in here and his goal is to win and sustain winning. And... Sometimes you have tough decisions to make when if you could get a bump now, but is it going to hurt you moving forward? And I think that's what needs to be kind of evaluated here at the moment when it comes to a potential deal for Syndergaard, especially in light of the deal that was made in the wintertime when they went out and got Christian Yelich and sent off a, a ton of their top prospects. Can an organization especially an organization that's a small market team and is going to be limited in the amount of money that they spend, can an organization sustain winning when they have two trades in less than a year where they dish off multiple top prospects in the organization? I I don't know if there that's not a I asked that question in yes or no stand from a yes or no standpoint. I don't know if it is a yes or no answer. I think there's a lot of nuance that goes along with that. And the one thing about Noah Syndergaard is you do control him for years moving forward. And much of this team right now is controlled over multiple years. So it's not the same situation where the guys who are knocking on the door have clear roles and clear places on the team moving forward. That's one reason to go with Syndergaard. The other question that needs to be asked is if you go trade for Syndergaard, and I get I get that you've got club control in years moving forward, but you don't make a trade for Noah Syndergaard in the middle of the season thinking how that's going to help you in 2019 and 2020. You make those kind of moves in the offseason. If you're going to make a move for the future, it happens in the offseason. In-season trades, when you're going and acquiring talent, those in-season trades are for this year. So what David Stearns needs to look at on this roster and kind of make a decision on is, do they feel like they're a, a championship-caliber roster, especially if they can add a number-one pitcher the caliber of Noah Syndergaard? And that's a good question. I 
I've been thinking about that so much, and I know my job is to come on this podcast and have answers and everything, but I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been thinking to myself, are, are the Brewers a better team than the Cubs? Uh, the Cubs making a little bit of a run here. They've seemingly found their offense. It seems like when the Cubs are in trouble, they get in their own way. But you know what? The Brewers, when they get in trouble, they kind of get in their own way as well. And there's a lot of guys on the Brewers who have underperformed this year. And it's not an easy answer on are the Brewers better than the Cubs? Are the Cubs better than the Brewers? I guess if you're twisting my arm and I'm looking at it not from a record standpoint and not from a performance standpoint, if we're looking at these two rosters prior to the season even started, I would probably say the Cubs have a little bit of a better roster than the Brewers. But things don't always play out that way. So then the next question is, if you added Noah Syndergaard, let's say you think you're behind the Cubs. You don't feel like you're as good of a roster as the Cubs have. Well, if you added Noah Syndergaard, does that, do you leapfrog over? Does that do enough to change the roster? And then all of a sudden you look around the rest of the National League and you look at the Atlanta Braves and you look at the Washington Nationals and you look at the Los Angeles Dodgers. You look at those other teams that we're talking about in terms of maybe being National League championship caliber squads and say, okay, does a, does a Noah Syndergaard placing him on this roster, does this really make us a team that can go get to the NLCS? a team that can go really win the NLCS, be a World Series team this year? Those are the questions that need to be asked. And I think the answer is no to Noah Syndergaard if, if you don't feel like he's going to put you in position to be a championship caliber, a pennant-winning caliber team this year. That doesn't mean it's a failure if you go get him and you come up short of that especially if you come up short of that in the postseason. It's probably a little bit of a failure if you don't make it to the postseason at all. But it doesn't mean it's a failure. But if you if you sit there and say, well, even with Noah Syndergaard, you know, maybe maybe they're a wild card team. I don't see them getting, you know, they're probably not going to get past the NLDS. If that's, if that's the thought process going into it, at that point, is Syndergaard really worth it when you're giving up as many prospects as you're giving up? And I would say no at that point. So those are, I think those are the thoughts that are going in. Now, I don't, I don't think David Stearns feels that way. Stearns keeps stuff close to the vest. I don't think he feels that this is a team that would not have a shot in the National League Divisional Series, even as it sits right now. My goodness. They've had the best record in the National League for a long time. Uh, the Braves did move past them on Sunday when the Brewers lost to the Reds and the Braves completed a series sweep of the Cardinals. Uh, the Braves now have the best record in the National League. And what do you know? The Brewers and Braves are going to be playing against each other coming up this week at Miller Park. But overall, the Brewers have had a very, very good record, one of the best records, if not the best record in the National League throughout the course of the season. All right, here's what we got coming up on the program. Uh, we are going to be joined by uh, Kyle Lesneski from Brew Crew Ball and also uh, BP Milwaukee. He is going to join us coming up in our social media conversation. And Greg Young, he's going to join us. He's the Carolina Mudcats broadcaster. He's going to join us when we go down on the farm. But right now, let's go to this week's Headlines of the Week. It doesn't matter if it's right in the middle of the summer or winter. There's always news about the Brewers. Let's look back at the week that was with Matt's Headlines of the Week. All right, so we touched on Orlando Arcia during our first segment. He was sent to AAA. You would expect him to probably be down there for a while. Uh, get him right and get him right for a while. Uh, it, you know, 
three days of having multiple hits or something probably isn't enough. Some sustained success over an extended amount of time at the plate is what Orlando Arcia needs to find at this point. So I would not think that we're going to see Orlando Arcia back with the club unless something just crazy from a uh, from a need standpoint happens. So that's what you've got going on with Orlando Arcia. Over the course of the last week, Lorenzo Cain goes on the disabled list with a groin strain. He was really, really beat up prior to going on the DL. He had some other things going on as well. He kept getting hit, uh, so he was just banged up. Not the worst thing in the world for him to get a little bit of time. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise that his, bro- uh, that his groin kind of barked at him a little bit uh, because it gives him the opportunity to you know get a week and a half off away from games. It was funny. He was talking about testing. It sounds pretty likely that he'll be activated uh, this week when he's uh, eligible to be activated off the disabled list. But one of the things that he did to test the groin strain was he got on the treadmill and he did burst of speed at 12 miles per hour. 12 miles per hour. I remember when I uh, when I used to run on the treadmill a lot more than I run on the treadmill now. Uh, I was I was happy when I could get up to seven miles per hour. That was about my max speed on the treadmill. I was more of a five to six kind of guy, and I know I'm not the uh, the beacon of uh, athleticism here, and I'm comparing myself to a professional athlete. But 12 miles per hour, that is crazy. Uh, he is going to test his uh, groin running on the bases a bit, I believe, on Monday. And if that goes well, you should be able to see him come up or come back sooner than later. The team did recall Keon Broxton from AAA Colorado Springs. I'll tell you what, uh, Broxton put together a game for the ages uh, against Cincinnati on Friday. He goes three for four with three runs. He hit two home runs, so he has four RBIs. He had a crazy play where he was caught in a rundown. RC was on the bases as well. Caught in the rundown, eventually came in to score. Uh, he made multiple good defensive plays in center field, including just a ridiculous uh uh, diving catch. Magic Craig Council talking about it, saying there's thousands of guys who have come from the big leagues who have never, never had a game anything close to that. It was incredible to see uh, what Keon Broxton did. So that was pretty cool. Uh, the back end of the bullpen deal continues to be an up and down situation. Adrian Hauser had been with the team for a while. He had a multiple inning outing, so he gets uh, dispatched to uh, to Colorado Springs. Mike Zagurski gets called up. He was not especially good in his first outing. Also, uh, Aaron Wilkerson uh, gets called up. Remember, he was with the team at the end of last season. Uh, Wilkerson was not especially good in his outing. Seems like uh, you know they've gotten they've gotten pretty good performances from Adrian Hauser and, and Jorge Lopez, but some of these other guys being brought up haven't had quite the uh, the consistency that those guys have had. But it's just it's something it's a churn that the team's going to continue to use that final spot or two in the bullpen and bring guys up and down from Colorado Springs. A guy you know is going to go throw multiple innings for the Brewers, and he's that last guy in the bullpen. Guess what? He's going down so they can get a fresh arm uh, back up because at times it's more important about eating innings. And that was the case with Aaron Wilkerson. Uh, the Brewers. Uh, were down multiple runs in that game, and at that point they needed Wilkerson to eat innings, and even though he gave up uh, the, the five runs in the sixth inning on Sunday, he did finish the game off where the Brewers don't use anybody else out of the bullpen, and as they're in this period right now where they don't have any breaks between now and the All-Star break, and they've even got uh, a doubleheader thrown in there, uh, they need to have as many fresh arms as possible. 
Rehab assignments this past week. Tyler Saladino went on one, and uh, it went relatively well. I think we're going to see him back with the big clubs sooner than later, uh, and that's uh, that's a good thing, especially with Orlando Arcia uh, down at uh, AAA for now. Saladino's a guy you can put at shortstop. Uh, they've played Brad Miller. They've played Aaron Perez a little bit at shortstop. Eric Sogard can, uh, can play there if need be. But having Tyler Saladino, if he can uh, get back to where he was at from an offensive standpoint prior to the disabled list. That's a really good thing. Not as good a news on Zach Davies. He was making his third rehab start with the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers and went just three innings giving up uh, six runs on ten hits. He came up way short of the amount of pitches that he was supposed to throw and the word afterwards that he was dealing with some sort of back issue. So that might reset the rehab assignment. And at this point, quite honestly, I'd be surprised if we see Zach Davies pitching again before the All-Star break, uh, but that was not good news. Guys dealing with uh, injury issues who do not go on the disabled list, Christian Yelich uh, tweaked his back. Uh, he has not played since. Uh, there has been no move yet to uh, put him on the disabled list. They've been hopeful that uh, he would be able to uh, respond to it, but uh, he has not appeared in a game since it happened on Thursday, so they played basically that entire Cincinnati series without him. He's going to go through some tests, and if they can't uh, get that back right, you would probably see him on the disabled list. Uh, or it improves and he's back, and that's what you can uh, certainly hope for. Uh, also, from a back standpoint, Ryan Braun missed a couple games. Uh, as his back tightened up on him, but he was back in the lineup on Sunday. Travis Shaw, and he hit a home run, by the way, on Sunday as well, so that was good to see. Uh, Travis Shaw had a wrist issue this past week that kept him out of some games as well. I think he was pretty close to possibly going on the disabled list. He was at the point when he finally played again off that wrist that if he wouldn't have been available that day, he probably would have been on the disabled list. So walking wounded right now for the Brewers to continue to play as well uh, as they have played uh, is pretty impressive considering just this long list of injuries uh, that we've talked about. The Brewers announced their uh, player and pitcher of the month for the month of June. No surprise, especially on the uh, player of the month, Jesus Aguilar. He hit 10 home runs, leading the team in hits with 26, doubles with 6, and RBIs at 24. And Brent Suter is named the pit, uh, pitcher of the month for June as he held opponents to a 198 average while posting a 3.60 ERA in five starts. And those are this week's Headlines of the Week. After every Brewers game, signing an announcement, bloggers and podcasters hit the web to give their take. Now we bring them all together. It's the Social Media Roundtable, and it starts now. Brewers Extraordinaries, the podcast is powered by WTMJ Mobile. It is time for our social media conversation. We're very happy to welcome in one of our regular guests. He is uh, the managing editor over at Brew Crew Ball. You can also read him uh, at uh, BP Milwaukee. He is at Kyle Lesneski. Kyle, it's always great to talk to you. How are you doing? Um, I certainly can't complain. I uh, had a big family vacation coming up this week, so excited to take uh, you know a few days off of work and, and get out of town for a little while. Let me uh, let me put you on the spot to get this thing rolling. Who is going to wear a Brewers uniform again first, Orlando Arcia or Domingo Santana? Um, at this point, I would say that there's probably a better chance that we see Domingo Santana sooner rather than later, especially with the way that things have kind of gone in the outfield. Um, with Christian Yelich's 
back injury. Uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of a question mark there. Uh, I want to say I saw a report that he's going to take batting practice tomorrow or the next day or something like that and see how he responds from there. And depending on that outcome, uh, it could ultimately end up in a, in a disabled list. Um, Sanchez looked okay so far down in Colorado Springs. I think he's got a run and a double down there so far, um, and he's got at least one hit in, in each one of the games that he's played in. Um, so, you know, it's improved over what he's done at the big league level this season. Um, you know, injuries, I think, are kind of going to play a factor on both ends here, and, and ultimately you'd like to maybe get both of those guys a pretty extended time down there to try and, and get back on track, but with the way the outfield situation looks right now, um, I would think that we probably have a better chance of seeing Domingo Santana sooner than we do Arcia. Kind of a weird spot for this team right now in the sense that they have been dealing with just so many injuries, and they, they keep coming. Uh, we saw Ryan Braun get back on the field on Sunday, so that was a good development, but obviously Christian Yelich is out from the pitching standpoint. Who knows when we're going to see uh, Zach Davies return. Lorenzo Kane, hopefully he's back at some point uh, over the course of the next week. Travis Shaw has spent some time on the DL. Eric Thames has spent some time on the DL. Have we seen this team yet get anywhere near their potential of how good they could be. And it's kind of funny saying that considering they've held the best record in the National League most of the year, as we're talking right now, they don't. But they've been so good, yet just with all those injuries, it seems like it's been very uh, very few times that they've been able to put out that top lineup for an extended amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, even just not just injuries, but, you know, underperformance the guys, too, has kind of played a played a pretty big role and you know i looking at the guys that they have on the roster and the and the things that we've seen guys like orlando arcia do and like uh domingo santana do and the, the guys like chase anderson who we've seen perform a lot better in the past and he's kind of been doing this season and, um you know it just feels like there's a lot more upside to this team than even what they've shown so far as as you know having the best record in the national league um which you know makes it all that much more frustrating when we see games like the last couple of days of the last couple of days where you know it, it, they just kind of go out and and lose lose in a in a pretty embarrassing fashion, I guess. Um, so you know it, it's kind of frustrating to see, and you know all through the off season and and during spring training, the the buzzword that you know we heard out of Craig Council and David Stern so many times was how much depth this team has and how over the course of 162 games you can't predict what's going to happen and who's going to get hurt and everything's going to kind of work itself out. And, you know, so far it has. We haven't really encountered a scenario where the team is at 100% full strength. And, you know, they've they've gone extended periods of time, like you said, without Eric James. And now we've got uh, Lorenzo Kane on the disabled list. And Christian Yelich is the elite. Ryan Bronze can been on and off the disabled list. And, Travis Shaw maybe should be on the disabled list, but, you know, has kind of been fighting through his wrist injury. And, um, yeah, you you would like to see at some point maybe all these guys get back healthy and get back on track and see a little bit better production out of, out of the players like Santana and Arcia and, um, you know, guys like that going forward. But ultimately that's why the Brewers went out and, and built the team the way that they did to be able to withstand you know, longer-term injuries to key members of the lineup or maybe underperformance by some guys that they were hoping to count on. But, you know, now you've got 
and, and have gone out and got guys like Tyler Saladino and, and Brad Miller to come in and, and help out the situation. And um, I think it's just, you know, a testament to sort of the masterful job that David Stearns has been able to do with this roster and, and maintain the flexibility that we've seen at, uh, all around the diamond so far this year. You make reference to the most recent games, and we're talking on Sunday, so the two most recent games, Saturday's 12-3 loss and Sunday's 8-2 loss. This could be a long question, which is always a no-no in radio, but we're on a podcast, so I can ask, ask as long as a question as I want to. Uh, it's really easy to... Blame the bullpen, and obviously they need better production out of some of these bullpen arms that did not perform well. But a lot of people were complaining after the 12-3 game on Saturday about how the bullpen's used. And I sit there and I look, and when you, you can take a big-picture perspective and look at who's used and who's not used and say, what, what's Craig Council doing not using these guys? But then when you break it down on a decision-by-decision decision basis, once Chassin is done after five, you know Taylor Williams has kind of become that top guy after your big three of uh, Knable, Hader, and Jeffress. So that's a big spot for him. He goes in there. Uh, once you know he gave an inning, giving up a run, and then he gives up a run that eventually scores or a, a, a runner that eventually scores in the next inning. Lefties are coming up, so they go with Zagurski. Jennings was used the night before. Hader wasn't available. Zagurski didn't work out. Then they go with Barnes, who actually is having a really nice season. Even after that outing, he had a 2.53 ERA. So I have a hard time arguing with any of those decisions on those guys being brought in. And then even in Sunday's game, Peralta surprisingly goes five after he throws better than 40 pitches. Uh, it's a it's a three nothing game. You've got you have no off days coming up. You want to be careful. And if you use those high leverage guys or not, uh, they then go to Wilkerson, and Wilkerson does a nice job making sure that no other bullpen arms are used. Uh, there's there's arguments for other guys being used, probably more so on Sunday than Saturday, but isn't it a case right now of those guys that are in there need to perform, not so much a case of Craig Council making bad decisions on which pitcher he's going to go to? Yeah, I, I would think that's that's a pretty good summation. Of, I mean, you know, going into Saturday's game, I want to say Josh Hader had pitched four out of the previous five games, which is more usage than he's gotten almost the entire season. I believe he pitched in back-to-back games for only the second time this year. Um, Jeremy Jeffress was used pretty frequently throughout the last week, and um, you know, you, they typically save Corey Knabel for the for the ninth inning, and that's you know just the way that that ends up going. So, but um, you know, they can't just go to those three guys all season long, and they haven't been going to those guys all three all season long. And you know, unfortunately, they're they're down and arm with Matt Albers right now, and he's a guy who would who would factor into that situation in those late sort of innings. And um, you know, it, you like you said, those guys still need to go out there and do their job. And Taylor Williams has, has done pretty well so far throughout the entire season. I've actually been, you know, really pleased with, with how he's progressed this year in his first full season in the big leagues, especially after, you know, missing all that time with injury. And, you know, just sometimes a guy goes out and he, he doesn't he doesn't have his best game. I mean, Taylor Williams still has a sub-three year and run average on the year, and that's, that's a guy that you would want in your bullpen, right? I, I don't know anybody that would say that they don't, and um, you know, same sort of thing with, with Jacob Barnes. Like you mentioned, he's having a really nice season. But even guys who have really nice seasons, they're going to have, you know, a game every once in a while where they just don't have it. And, you know, 
going to a guy like Zagurski or going to a guy like Wilkerson, and you know, those are the last two guys in the bullpen right now. And whether you're the last place team in baseball or you know the the best team in the National League, everybody's got their their twelfth arm and their thirteenth arm in the bullpen, and those guys are going to be replacement level sort of pitchers, whether you're the best team in baseball or the worst. So you're hoping that you can get good production out of that. You know, like Council alluded to, what they were mostly looking for out of Wilkerson today was to just get some length. And they ended up getting some length out of him. It wasn't, you know, maybe as productive as they would have hoped, but he at least, you know, saved, saved some innings from the rest of the bullpen. And, and yesterday going to Zagurski, he was a lefty with a bunch of lefties coming up in the lineup. That's, that's the role for that guy. And, you know, sometimes you do your job and, and sometimes you can't do your job. And it's just, you know, sort of stuff that happens throughout the course of a 162-game season. And it's, you know, a little frustrating because it feels like we've seen more of it of late. But looking at the pace that the bullpen had over the first two months of the season, I mean, it's just not going to be sustainable for every guy to have a, a zero ERA for, for the entire season. Like we saw, it felt like for the entirety of April and May. That's, that's just not going to happen. And, you know, so much of the baseball season is just sort of, of weathering the storm and trying to get to your next hot streak. And, you know, as we kind of already talked about during, during this conversation, the birds haven't been playing their best ball lately. And they've been, I want to say the last three weeks in a row, they've just kind of stayed at 500 each week. And, you know, that's been good enough to chew up a pretty significant chunk of the schedule and still keep them in first place in the central. So, you know, it's a long season. There's going to be ups and downs. Maybe we're in a little bit of a lull right now, but for this being a lull, I guess you, you really can't complain about how the team has weathered through this part of the schedule. We made reference to Orlando RC at the top of the conversation. Let's circle back on him. He gets sent down for the second time. The first time barely counts because uh, that was right when the Saladino injury occurred, and he was back about three days later, so he didn't get any extended time. I believe that at some point in time, Orlando Arcia is going to find his bat. I don't know if he's going to be a 270 hitter, but nobody's asking him to be a 270 hitter. 240, 250, the ability to not strike out, the ability to move runners over, hit a sack fly, get an RBI ground out when those opportunities arise. You know, That's all that he's really being asked to, to do at this point. Uh, he's going to do that at some point. He's got a track record through the minor league level uh, of doing it. Is there? I guess the question is, though, is there any reason to expect that we're going to see that out of his bat this year, or is it still something that we very easily might have to wait until next year to see again? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think that they're going to try and give him a pretty extended stint in the minors unless, you know, some sort of emergency situation arises again. Um, It's been really difficult to watch Arcia throughout the season. He just looks totally lost at the plate and um you know he's he's never been a very disciplined hitter and in reality he's still pretty much the same hitter that he's been since the first first called him up back in august of 2016 he has one of the highest rates of swinging at pitches outside of the strike zone in the major leagues and um he hits the ball on the ground an awful lot uh he doesn't you know make an abundant amount of hard contact and um, 
he doesn't really take any walks. He's just not a very patient hitter. So this is going to be a guy who's really, uh, unless he, you know, changes his approach at the plate and the way that, that he goes after pitchers, this is going to be a guy who's going to really rely on his batting average to kind of boost his whole offensive production. He's not going to be a big power hitter. He's going to be a guy that you hope you can get, you know, maybe a, a 250 batting average, a 300 or so on base percentage, and, you know, maybe a, a 400 slugging percentage, something in that range, you know, 10 home runs or so. And um, really, the way that Arcia plays defense makes him so incredibly valuable that if he could just put something up in the range of like a 70 to 75 weighted runs created plus, which in the broader context of the league would be 25 to 30% below the average offensive player, his value on defense more than makes up for what the difference would be on offense. It's not going to take a lot of offensive production from Orlando Arcia to make him a very valuable regular shortstop. But the way that he's been producing this season, it, it's just the value's not there. He, his defense has been outstanding all year long, and the defensive run saves leaderboard. You know, he's, he's right up there towards the top, but his, his bat has just been so anemic that it, it's totally sapped all of that value. I, I believe um, his 27 weighted runs created plus 73% below the league average. He was the the worst hitter in the National League with at least 150 plate appearances. And, you know, it, it's it's tough because this guy was probably the most hyped prospect coming up through the organization that that had come up since Ryan Braun in, in 2007. And he was, you know, a top 10 prospect league-wide on all those prospect lists. And everybody was all excited about this guy after his big season in, in AA in 2015. And I think at, at this point, it's, it's pretty fair to say that he has not come close to living up to those expectations. And his performance last year was, was nice, but when you look at the peripheral statistics, it, it seems like there might have been a fair amount of luck involved for him to, to even be a 270 hitter. So, you know, like I said, it, it's not going to take a lot of offensive production for Orlando Garcia to be a valuable player but he, he's just not really anywhere close to that point right now. So, you know, hopefully um, a few weeks or uh, maybe a couple months down at, at Colorado Springs, which which is a good environment for hitters, obviously, um, can can maybe help him get a little bit more confidence at the plate. And, um, you know, I, th- I think once he gets that confidence back, um, it, it'll help him be a lot more consistent in his mechanics and his approach, and he will feel so compelled to just swing out of his shoes on every swing and, and try and put something out there. If you're David Stearns and you're thinking for post-trade deadline of this season, is the better route to try to go acquire a shortstop who can essentially be an everyday shortstop, or is the better route to use some combination of Brad Miller, Hernan Perez, Saladino, and hope that Arcia gets it figured out before the season comes to an end? Um, I would say at this point it's 
certainly worth exploring what the deals out there might be. Um, I know everybody, the big name is, is Manny Machado that everybody's talking about. And there's been some sort of mixed reports. Uh, Ken Rosenthal said a few weeks ago that um, the Brewers weren't really expected to be in play for Machado. And then a week later, Bob Nightingale followed up with a report that they were expected to be, um, you know, one of the teams strongly in pursuit of him at the deadline. So, you know, some kind of simultaneous and, and contradictory reports there. But even if they don't end up going after Machado, a guy like uh, Jose Iglesias of the Tigers, is a, who's a good defensive shortstop and above a league average hitter, who, um, Jordy Mercer of the Pirates is another guy who could make sense. You know, they're they're solid bats, about league average or so hitters, and um, they'll play decent defense at shortstop, and they would be, you know, good enough stop gaps that probably wouldn't come at, at prohibitive prices. Um, but at, at this point, I think that it's worth seeing what they have and the guys that they have in-house. Um, you know, we've still got another four weeks or so till the trade deadline, just, you know, today, July 1st. So um, got a little bit of time here to see what Brad Miller can do. And he's he's looked pretty good so far through his, you know, first few games with the Brewers. Uh, I believe he's got like a 370 on base percentage through his first, you know, 15 or 20, 20 plate appearances, whatever it's been so far. Um and then with Tyler Saladino coming back, uh, just completed his, his rehab assignment over the weekend at Class A Wisconsin, so I would expect that he's going to kind of find his way back into the fold here this week. Um, and he's somebody who, who certainly looked like he was an improved hitter during his brief trial um, at the beginning of the season before he went down with that ankle injury. So we'll see if he can keep that up You know, now that, now that his ankle seems like it's ready to go, and he's a really quality defensive shortstop, so that kind of um, lessens the pressure maybe to, to stick Brad Miller over there and, and keep him more at a position like second base where he might feel a little bit more comfortable on defense and um, not have to worry so much about him being a liability out there. Um, but, if, I mean, if both guys can be league average hitters or something close to it and provide, you know, decent enough defense where it's not, you know, not hurting the team or anything, um, and I would think that, that that would be enough of an upgrade for them over what they were getting out of Arcia to not really have to worry about expending a ton of time and, and energy looking for an upgrade at that position before the deadline. All right, I'll finish you off with this, and I'm burying the lead because this is probably the biggest story uh, of the last few days, and, and we're going to wrap up our conversation with it. Uh, the Brewers reported interest in Noah Syndergaard, and we can assume that to go get Syndergaard, who you'd still have some club control on, it would take a Christian Yelich level of return to the Mets to get him. Giving up that many prospects and that many high-level prospects, doing that twice in one calendar year for a small market team that still needs to build their core through the draft and development and all that sort of thing, uh, it's, it's tough to sell that, but at the same time, You've got a team that has had the best record in the National League for a while prior to their loss uh, on Sunday. Uh, you've got a team that is clearly in need of a true number one pitcher. So, I mean, it's it's really easy to argue both sides of this point. Where do you stand on the idea of getting Syndergaard knowing that it's going to be a pretty hefty price tag to get him? Yeah, you know, to be honest with 
the context of the Yelich trade happening so recently, this isn't really the kind of move that I would have expected the Brewers to pursue this. Um, I thought they would have, you know, maybe looked at some more marginal upgrades, uh, maybe a guy like a Jay Happ or a Tyson Ross or something like that. You know, a, a cheaper sort of rental that they could plug into the rotation, somebody who be able to provide some, some quality innings and, and help push them closer to that sort of full-season berth. Um, but over the weekend in uh, Appleton during Zach, Zach Davies' rehab start, David Stearns came out and, and said that uh, the Brewers are pretty pleased with the depth sort of pitchers that they had in house right now. And, you know, I guess looking at a guy like Tyson Ross or, or Jay Happ, all those guys are, are more so proven, I guess, than you know, maybe some of the guys that they have in house, like, uh, like a junior Gare or Freddie Peralta or a Brent Suter, you know, guys who have been pitching solid for the team throughout the season, but don't have extensive track records. Um, the Brewers seem to like those guys, their guys enough that they don't want to go out and expend any sort of prospect capital to bring in more guys like that. If they're going to go out and, and prospect capital on, on addressing the pitching rotation, they're going to get somebody who can, quote-unquote, help lead the rotation. And Noah Syndergaard would certainly be that kind of arm. Um, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of what you would look for from a pitcher, this guy is the total package. He averages 98 to 99 miles an hour on his, on his fastball. He strikes out 10 to 11 batters per nine innings. He's walked less than two batters for nine innings for his career. He doesn't give up a lot of home runs, less than, uh, I don't even want to say he's like seven-tenths of a home run per nine innings over his career. Um, generates a lot of hard contact, or a lot of soft contact. He's only given up about 25, 26% hard contact rate in his career. He keeps the ball on the ground when, when batters actually do put the ball in play. He's got about a 50% ground ball rate. So, you know, when looking at a at a pitcher, what what more could you want out of a guy? And I guess the answer in Syndergaard's case would maybe be that you want a guy who's going to be a little bit more durable. He only um, made seven starts last season with a uh, lat tear that I don't believe required surgery. He was able to rehab it and, and get back in time for the start of this season, but he's been held up since um, the end of May with a uh, issue with a ligament in his in a, his index finger on his right hand. Um, but from what I understand, he, he recently threw a successful bullpen, bullpen session. He's um, on his way to pitch a simulated game in spring training. It sounds like he should be back ready for regular duty here within the next couple of weeks or so. Um, so, I mean, this is a guy who would certainly be a, a number one pitcher for your rotation when he's healthy. And... He's under control for the rest of this season and then all of 2019 and all of 2020 and all of 2021. So this is a guy who can be here for the long term and, and be that guy who can lead your starting rotation. And, you know, for, for as much as it would hurt to give up a guy like, like Keston here, who would almost certainly have to, have to lead this package and a guy like Corbin Burns and, um, I want to say, uh, Corey Ray, uh, Hira, Burns, and Ray was the proposed package that um, John Harper from the New York Daily News, who reported the Syndergaard news, um, suggested for uh, for a Syndergaard trade. And personally, I think that might even be a little bit light. I would imagine that the Mets are probably going to ask for a, a, at least one more good prospect on top of that. 
but you know when you look at where the Brewers are now at the major league level, they've got Christian Yelich for the next five seasons. They've got Lorenzo Cain for the next four years after this. Um, you know, they've got Jesus Aguilar for another four seasons after this. Travis Shaw is here for another three years. Um, Orlando Arcia, if he can get back on track, is another four years. Same thing with Domingo Santana, another three seasons after this. Uh, Ryan Braun's not going anywhere soon. Um, you know, they all these guys they have here, uh, the, these core guys aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So when you have a controllable and pretty inexpensive team at the major league level, you don't have to worry so much about, you know, plugging in those gaps with your farm system, at least in the near term. So with, with how much um, certainty, I guess, the team already has across the diamond at the MLB level, you got to kind of weigh that against what the prospect cost might be and what you think your opportunities might be over the next few seasons. You know, it's it's July 1st, and the Brewers have the best record in the National League. We know that right now. We know what the team looks like right now, and we can certainly picture what the team would look like by plugging in a guy like Noah Syndergaard. We don't know exactly what Keston here is going to be, and it looks, you know, certainly like he's a, a hitting savant in the minor leagues, but... You know, in reality, the median outcome for a guy like that, like what we should hope that he turns into as a prospect is, you know, realistically a 280 hitter with, you know, 15 home runs a year. Um, Corbin Burns, you know, maybe realistically a number, a number three starter, number four starter. So what Billy Chassin is, I guess. Um, and Corey Ray, you know, uh, high strikeout athletic center fielder. Um, you know, maybe he ends up looking like what Keon Broxton has been at the big league level or, or Brett Phillips. You know, it's it's a similar sort of profile. And as much as we like to get excited about those guys because there are guys in the minor leagues and they're, you know, the guys we've followed since the Brewers drafted them and all that kind of stuff, you got to keep in mind in the, in the broader context of baseball, like what these guys generally end up looking like. And, you know, it is are you willing to risk losing those median outcomes to plug in a, a guy like Noah Syndergaard in your rotation? And it, it sounds like the Brewers are at least willing to consider that possibility. And you know, with the way that, that David Stearns has shown that he can go out and, and find talent almost at will, whether it's on the waiver wire or signing guys to minor league free agent deals or, or picking up guys and, you know, just random minor trades, um, Maybe losing some top prospects for the time being isn't something that we should worry a ton about because David Stearns has shown that he's he's been able to plug those holes in other ways. So, you know, I certainly would understand if the Brewers were hesitant to to part with that much talent, especially after after getting getting rid of all those prospects in the Yellow trade. Um, but at the same time. I would definitely be excited if they went out and made a deal for Syndergaard, and, and I would think that it would make sense for this team where they're at right now. It presents a little bit of another question, though, because I get the 2019, 2020, 2021 stuff. That's great, and that's a that would be a that'd be a benefit of the deal that you'd have Syndergaard under contract for a while. But you go acquire Syndergaard mid-season, 
that's not a deal about 2019. That's not a deal about 2020. That's a that's a deal that you're making to win in 2018. And that's a that's a that's a Verlander kind of deal like the Houston Astros made saying we're going for it to to win a championship. I'm not saying that the Brewers are going to win a World Series with that. I'm not even saying they'll get to the NLCS, but are are they at the very least, if they're going and getting Noah Syndergaard, they're internally saying, "Hey, we've got a chance to be, at the you know be, get to the NLCS at the very least." Do you feel like the Brewers are at a place right now where they truly are maybe a player away from being an NLCS team that it makes sense for this year to make that deal, not not worrying at all about future years. Yeah, I would say that yes, that the, the team is is ready for a move like this, and um, you, you know you got to. It, it's tough because the you know the the school rebuild thing, and you know, it's ahead of schedule, and you know ultimately when when you look back on last season, it feels almost like the Brewers missed an opportunity, and they were involved in all of these conversations for all these different pitchers at the deadline, and um, they didn't really end up making any significant moves and didn't end up adding a starter. And then, you know, we got into September and all of a sudden, you know, Jeremy Jefferson's starting games and they're using the bullpen game every few days because they just don't have enough guys. And even if they would have gone out and, and just gotten a, a sort of depth guy or something like something like that could have made a difference for the team last year, missing the playoffs by one game. And, you know, all through the winter, there was there was the conversation about you know, at least among fans, should the team you know make some more moves for last year for real? And clearly, the Brewers felt pretty confident internally that the team was ready to to take that sort of next step. They spent 145 million dollars over the off season acquiring guys like Kane and and Yelich and um, signing Jolie Chassin, and it, it was the the biggest off season in franchise history in terms of in terms of um, money spent and and uh, they gave up four really really highly rated prospects to go out and get a, a star caliber player and I don't think that the team would have made moves that significant if they didn't feel confident internally about what they had and if and if they didn't think that there was a legitimate chance for them to make a push deep into the postseason. I'm thinking that we probably would still be seeing guys like Lewis Brinson patrolling center field, and and um, you know we we probably be weathering through a lot more Orlando Arcia even even as he continues to struggle. The team is is looking like they're ready to win now, uh, and they're not developing anymore at the big league level. They're they're trying to push into the postseason. I will finish you off with this, and it's kind of funny because you bring you allude to it with them not making a move last year. So if they go acquire Sonny Gray or uh, Jose Quintana, they probably don't have Christian Yelich right now because Lewis Brinson in all likelihood would have been part of those trades. And I had a caller on, uh, on my show today after the Brewers game uh, talking about, oh, it'd be really nice to have Jonathan Lucroy. And 
you know, I, first off, I don't think Lucroy wanted to be with the Brewers at that time. He'd made those comments in the offseason before about wanting to play for a winner. But even throwing that off to the side, if Jonathan Lucroy is still on this team somehow, some way, you don't have Christian Yelich because Lewis Brinson never comes here. It is funny how things work out because if you come up to me and say, do you want Yelich or Lucroy? I'll take Yelich. Yelich or Quintana, I'll take Yelich. Yelich or Gray, I'll take Yelich. I don't know if you agree with me on all those, but uh, basically I I think they got the better player out of some moves that were made and some moves that were not made. Yeah, I mean, ultimately I I definitely think that it worked out. Um, But, I mean, you know, even looking back, as much as the conversations focused on on Sonny Gray and Jose Quintana, even if they would have maybe gone out and gotten a guy like, Jeremy Hellickson or something like that. Like that could have made a difference. Like they, they needed one more win. And on the last few days of the season, they were starting an injured junior Guerra who had been really terrible all season. And Aaron Wilkerson, who was an undrafted free agent that they had just called up for the first time. And yeah, I mean, do you know, if you would have had maybe an actual proven starting pitcher, even if it was not not one of those top two guys that yeah. could have made a difference, but you know, ultimately they they did what they did, and, and things ended up working out the way that they did. And you know, I, I don't have any any regrets about them not getting Gray or Quintana now that they have Yelich. I think that you know, like you said, I would rather have Yelich than than those other two guys for for what they gave up for him. Um, but. You know, like like I said, I think this season, this team, the way that it's been assembled, and the guys that are in the clubhouse right now, I think that this team is is ready to win and and ready to push themselves to the next level. So I don't think that the that the front office is going to hesitate to explore any of these deals. And you know, David Stearns is is going to stick to his value driven evaluation and how he judges these moves and, and whether or not a move is worth it or not. Um, but, you know, I think that they're going to be maybe more willing than some fans are to move some of these top prospects, even though they just dealt a bunch of them. I think they're going to be more willing to, to try and make this push this year. All right, so what do you guys have going on? I mean, the content that you guys are putting out on Brew Crew Ball on a daily basis is uh, is pretty awesome, and you and your staff are doing a, a fantastic job. Uh, what can folks uh, expect coming up here uh, maybe this week uh, at the site? Um, this is actually going to be a, a pretty decent week in terms of news. Uh, tomorrow the new um, signing period for international free agents begins, so our excellent prospect analyst Brad Ford will have uh, – all the news and scouting reports that she'll be looking for for that. Uh, sounds like the Blues are going to be making a pretty big splash in international free agency if the rumors are true. And then just a few days after that, the uh, deadline for signing your draft picks is coming up. Uh, the Blues only have one top ten left or top ten pick left to sign. Their number one overall pick, Bryce Terrain. Um, and I don't think that people should really be worried about getting a deal done, but it seems like there's some consternation among fans, but you know, Brad is going to uh, have all the latest news as far as any of that kind of stuff goes. And if the Brewers do end up signing, you know, maybe some of their interesting prep picks that they, uh, you know, did after the, the top 10 runs or anything like that. 
Um, we're also going to continue to follow any you know sort of news or rumors that that break as far as the uh, trade deadline and all that stuff coming up. And um, here within the next few days, we're going to begin our trade candidate series, trade profile series, um, and start looking at guys around the league who could make sense for the Brewers to go out and take a look at it. Kyle, I kept you for a really long time. Thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. Uh, this was a great conversation. We look forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, no, it's always my pleasure to come on. I always appreciate the opportunity whenever you reach out. So, uh, Great to come on and chat with you. The future of the Brewers organization has never been more important than it is right now. It's time to get an inside look at what's taking place throughout the Brewers minor league affiliates as we go down on the farm. Brewers x the podcast is powered by WTMJ Mobile. It is time to go down on the farm. We're very happy to uh, welcome in the broadcaster and director of media relations for the Carolina Mudcats, the high-A affiliate of the Milwaukee Brewers. It is Greg Young. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg Young Jr. Jr. just Jr. So Greg Young Jr. Greg, it's always great to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? Uh, doing all right. Appreciate you taking some uh, time with us into the uh, the second half of the uh, season now in the uh, Carolina League. Let's go back to uh, the first half for just a bit. Uh, team finishes with a respectable uh, record in the first half at uh, 34 and 36, but end up uh, seven games back and in fourth place in the uh, in the Southern Division. Uh, what's the takeaway from the way things went in the first half for the club? Uh, you know what? I, I think that the biggest thing to take away was uh, kind of the rebound of the pitching staff. Um, part of the reason why they finished back as far back as they did, uh, or even just finished as close as they did when it was all said and done, is because of one kind of a slow start that the, the bullpen got out to at the beginning of the season. They were blowing a lot of late leads uh, and unfortunately had a lot of late collapses and lost a lot of games early because they just weren't able to hold on. But then that changed. And uh, with that, then the starting pitching was continuing to do what it had done all year. Obviously, Cam Regner had led the way with for a long time there at the best ERA in minor league baseball. Trey Shepard was right behind them, so they were 1-2 and two in the league in ERA. The starting rotation was certainly holding up. It's, and the bullpen started to catch up about maybe the middle of May. And then from then on, uh, into June and then throughout the end of the first half. I mean, they were they were nails. They were great. And that was kind of the thing that kept the team afloat. You know, they didn't really hit well, uh, especially in June and especially without Keston Hira. But without the pitching getting to second in the league at the RA and going out there and putting up quality starts or getting in and out of jams as far as the bullpen was concerned, that's what really kind of kept them going. And uh, I think it really speaks volumes to what Bob Malacki has done with this crew. I think he's done a great job as the pitching coach, and obviously what manager Aralt has done and uh, trying to the, the, the limit innings maybe for certain guys at certain times and getting the right guys in at the right time. And uh, it really did work out well. And without that, uh, that first half would have been pretty bleak because, again, the, the hitting was not very good. Just as, as much as the, the pitching staff sort of went up, the offense unfortunately went down, and it, it never really sort of evened out. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll see that in the second half. But uh, I thought that was the biggest thing to take away as far as on a team end. And obviously there were some great individual performances too with all the all-stars we had. But to me, just seeing the team staff begin to kind of come back, that was uh, the thing that I thought was uh, the most impressive, for, especially with the way they started. Five and five so far uh, in the second half. And uh, the team's playing Bowie's Creek right now, played a couple games at their place and then a couple games at, uh, at your place. That's a really good Bowie's Creek team uh, that's gone off mm-hmm. to a nice start to the, uh, the second half. But looks like at the moment maybe a little bit of an offensive uh, challenge for uh, the club. Yeah, you know, um, you know, it, 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 I think it's been a matter of kind of a lot of guys getting cold at exactly the same time. So hopefully, maybe that changes where they begin to get hot. 
at the same time. And I think that was true uh, in this series in Salem recently. We had a lot of guys who were working on four, five, even six-game hit streaks. Uh, Johan Helsegovia is in a nine-game hit streak. Um, as we record this now, he extended it today with a, a hit and a run in the first inning at Bowie's Creek. Unfortunately, though, that ended up being the only run of the game. And uh, they lost 3-1. But I think uh, just you know, maybe trying to get a few of the guys out at the same time is, is, is going to be real big. Um, but without here, I, you know, this, this offense is just it's totally different. And they have not been able to, to really bounce back from that. I mean, they, they had the worst batting average in the month of June in this league. Uh, one of the lowest for a full season team in minor league baseball, unfortunately, in June, and that's exactly in the time that they have in that era. He went up after May thir- uh, third, first, went five for five in that final game with a couple of home runs in his last at bats. I mean, it was video game type stuff he was doing that day, and what he was doing those uh, weeks leading up to that. So, uh, without him, it, it it really just they haven't been able to find a bat to kind of fill that spot, and that's a big fill anyway for anybody in any team, but even just kind of collectively getting a couple of guys to, to kind of fill that hole at the same time just hasn't happened yet. We'll get into some of the individuals in a moment, but i got to ask you, uh, Five County Stadium hosting an all-star event for the first time since uh, 2008 when uh, the Carolina League uh, all-star game uh, was held uh, on June 19th. Just talk to me a little bit about that event and how it went that night. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it, the game in and of itself is always a great time. You know, getting a chance to see all of that talent pulled together at the same time. You know, manager Arrow talked a lot about that. You know, it was really cool having those big names in the Southern Division all in his dugout at the same time, and just being able to talk to those guys and kind of feed off the energy and, and all of that, and, and you know, play that game. I think for them it was exciting. It was great for me just to to be able to call that with all those great names and future big leaguers all being there all at once. Um, you know, it, 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 it was a lot of fun, and then we did some really cool where as opposed to doing you know like a home run derby or maybe a skills challenge we opted instead to have uh, a local miracle league game uh, down there on the field so basically what we had was the local miracle league was there with their kids and their participating members and parents and what have you all in the field and they were matched up with a couple of players per kid and what they would do is the kid would you know basically take it at bat and the player would run around the bases with them and, and all that kind of stuff and it was really cool we ended up doing like uh, it was two teams one side versus the other north versus south and, but the kids had their own jerseys and, and all that kind of stuff. So just a great kind of event to be around. Those kind of things happen all the time during the season for any minor league team. But to be able to do that on that stage with all those great players, and you're talking about you know future big leaguers uh, just everywhere on that field at that particular moment, I think it's really cool for those kids. It was great for the parents, great for the fans to be able to see it and participate. And we had a, a really long autograph session before all of that, too. So it was just great just to the one-on-one interaction that everybody got that day with the guys and uh, and then the game. The game was great. It's in itself. The South came back and won it late. Um, it was. It was just. It was a lot of fun. I I was in minor league baseball for 10 years, so I've seen all these guys. You you had the Superstars and Bird Zirkin there. Tell me, of of all the traveling minor league acts that when you do this for a while, you see over and over and over, what's the one act that you kind of get, that you're happy when you walk into the ballpark and you know you're going to see them that night? Superstars is probably that one for me. Um, You know, I've seen a lot of them, but uh, Superstars, it's just a. The big inflatable, you know, mascot stuff. I don't know what it is about those, but they, they just—it's—it's it's a blast. They do a great job, um, you know. And they have each character's named off of or based off of some former big leaguer, Hall of Famer, whatever it might be. I mean, you know, they, they have like a big trout, I think, for Mike Trout or something like that. I mean, it's a big inflatable costume, but it, you know, it's cool. They, they put on a great show. Uh, they always get the umpires involved, which I think is fun too, because you don't really see those guys humanized very often. And they, at least for that particular moment, they're not so robotic in a sense. 
and they get to have some fun too and, and really show like the kind of character that they have. The guys got a chance to dance. Tucker Newhouse actually was an all-star this year. He, he got in a dance contest with one of them, um, with one of those infl- inflatable uh, mascot guys with uh, with superstars. But yeah, it, that that to me is, is the, the fun one. Yeah, you mentioned the umpire. That's interesting you say that about the umpires because I think about uh... – Myra Noodleman, who passed away recently, who was just right. so much fun to watch, and uh, even the famous chicken, those guys would get people involved. You know, Myra Noodleman would do the dueling signs, and uh, obviously the chicken did all kinds of things. He would actually go coach over at first base. Uh, there is something to be said for the acts that get uh, the players and the umpires and everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, you get to see a, a different side of those guys. You know, sometimes it's it's difficult for them to, to kind of let loose and show that for the players anyway, and then for the umpires especially. I think they're sort of, in a way, taught to do that. They, they need to maintain that, that level of professionalism that doesn't lead anyone questioning what they do sometimes, especially on the field, but um, with their calls. But, uh, you know, the players, I think with social media today, you kind of get an idea of what they're all about and the, the fun that, that, that they have with each other and just their, their overall character. But, um, it's being able to, to see it sort of let loose in an environment like that is uh, is pretty cool. Though, I mean, those are the kind of accents that I like the most, the ones that you know just kind of lighten the mood a little bit for everybody. You have a number of guys who had been at Wisconsin and have already gotten a call up, and some of those guys are the guys who are kind of uh, leading the way offensively. Let's start with uh, Demi Ormoloy, as he's somebody who came up from the Timber Rattlers. Looks like he's gotten off to a pretty nice start in his uh, Mudcats career. Yeah, he has. Um, he had safely in, in, in the first seven games that he had with us. Um, hasn't shown the extra base, maybe big power numbers yet in that regard. I think he's got a couple of doubles. Uh, most everything else has been singles, but he's hitting over 300. He's playing a pretty good outfield. Matter of fact, the, the biggest thing I think about him being here is that it's sort of balanced out the outfield um, a little bit better uh, defensively now because you have him playing center. Ryan Aguilar had been playing in center and had been playing uh, just fantastic, maybe the best center field in this league. Uh, but he's now moved over to right. Ormoloy's playing in center, and then you got Segovia playing in left. So suddenly, a Mudcats outfield that a lot of times is kind of patchworked with Weston Wilson filling in in right or left, depending on the lineup and who was available. Cooper Hummel moving into left field for the first time, really in his career as a pro, especially. But even going back to the college days, getting a chance to play there every day, he's no longer catching. Uh, at least not often, but uh, the, the outfield's more balanced now with Oram all the way out there. But he also adds, you know, a really interesting blend of, of of power. And then again, maybe the numbers haven't shown yet here, but they're there and will be. Those numbers will be there eventually because they were there before. And I think he's got that kind of uh, uh, game anyway and, and skill set. But he's also, I mean, he's he's incredibly fast. So you know, I think there's that that power and speed mix that, that is still kind of developing with him, and uh, he's already gotten out and, and, and run a bit on the bases, and has added kind of a new, um, uh, I guess, threat for Andrew Aralt in that regard. You know, with with Luis Avila Jr. no longer here, they don't really have a good three-stealing base threat anymore. Avila had been third in the league in steals when he went up the Double A to Biloxi, so having any out there to be able to run a little bit on the bases and, and create some problems, I think, will help out a lot. I was actually a little surprised when Mario Feliciano ended up with you guys. I thought there was a pretty good chance that uh, he would repeat with the Timber Rattlers being as young as he is and playing that catcher spot. He's played 13 games with the Mudcats so far. Offensive numbers aren't great. I'm not too terribly worried about his offense at this point. Uh, He's a guy I'm pretty excited about to see him progress through the system, and I think he might turn into a, a pretty good big leaguer. What's been your take so far on Feliciano? Really like his bat. I mean, everything that he hits just it just soars, and there's a lot of movement too with the way that he puts balls into the gap. They're always spinning, getting away uh, from the outfielders and, and finding holes. Just a real live bat too. Unfortunately, he's he's on the DL right now. I'm not sure if 
he's going to come back anytime soon. He had a, a play to play recently at Bowie's Creek, not in this current series that we just finished uh, today as we record this, but uh, it was the, the last time we were there. We've been there a lot uh, this year, but um, he uh, he got slid into at home and uh, suffered an injury. I, I, I think it might have been his hand. I'm not entirely sure yet, but I know that he is on the DL. He's going to be away from the team for a little bit. I hope that he comes back because he really did show a lot of flashes of really putting together uh, something special, I think, at the plate. You know, he had a, an RBI triple, actually, in the game that he got hurt in. It was, uh, I think, the only run-scoring hit that the team had in that, that game, unfortunately. He came early. It was a triple that he crushed off the center field wall, and, and that's not an easy job to do as far as getting one that deep at that particular ballpark. That, that field is it's a college field. Um, the batter's eye is shorter than it's supposed to be, at least for professional play and uh, the ball doesn't carry there just really well at all. So I think the offensive numbers depend. They usually dip, at least for our guys there. I don't know if it's true for the whole rest of the league. But um, so I, 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 to be able to, to hit one out to there and nearly get out of the ballpark, the straightaway center at their ballpark there at Campbell University, uh, was pretty impressive. But unfortunately, that was the last bat that he had with us, and, and that's going on now for about a, a couple of weeks now at this point. But, yeah, it looked real special. I, I think for him, I think the plan was always to have Max McDowell go up soon, so it was an opportunity maybe for him to be able to catch nearly every day, especially with uh, the, the the catcher, uh, Peyton Henry, I think, who is in uh, Wisconsin, if memory serves me right. Uh, I could be wrong. I, I don't recall the name, but he's, I think, got to a good start. So I, I think maybe trying to find a balance to, to how to utilize those both of those young catchers in development at the same time. No, you got that right. And there's some other catchers on that roster at Wisconsin as well. At the at the lower levels of the minor league system, at uh, at the single A level, uh, this organization has a ton of solid catching prospects. So that's a that's a good problem to have for sure. Yes. Uh, there's three guys on the roster who have played 68 games or, or more. Actually, four guys or, uh, who have played 68 games or more in Aguilar, Coward, Newhouse, and also uh, Wilson. There's been so much movement from Wisconsin to Carolina and movement from Carolina to Biloxi. And now that we passed the All-Star break, what, what's the mindset for, for those guys who have seen a lot of movement around them but maybe haven't been part of that movement? I think just keep trucking along. Um, you know, I think that's the only thing you can do. Um, you know, I think all of them understand the process uh, as far as, you know, maybe who goes who goes first, who's next in line, and, and all of that. But, um, you know, I, I think, too, for the guys that you mentioned, it, it's still a matter of kind of getting things going um, more consistently here before getting an opportunity to, to move up. Um, for Newhouse in particular right now, now that Avulus is no longer here and in AA, uh, Newhouse gets a chance to play at shortstop every day and maybe an opportunity to show you know, that he can handle that position and be kind of a leader in that regard. And, and, and immediately here at the beginning of the second half, while his batting average may not have may not shown it yet, but he's hitting the ball for power much better now than he had been really early on in the season. So maybe that new added responsibility um, or that just uh, leadership role that he's kind of been thrust into in a sense uh, is just helping him you know, maybe put together better at-bats and, and concentrate more on on you know putting the the bat on the ball and and, and really hitting it well and he he, had, he did that in Salem hit a couple of home runs there uh, monstrous shots too just one that was a laser over the center field wall and their ballpark is like ours where they have a really high center field wall twenty five maybe twenty eight feet um, just like it is at Five County Stadium and uh, just a line drive crushed so it's good to see Newhouse get an opportunity to get out there he'd already been playing every day playing at second base but to me the way that he plays shortstop it looks like he's a little bit more natural with the way that he moves on that side so it'd be good for him to be able to do that and play um, it, it maybe on the left side of the diamond a bit more here uh, moving forward and with Aguilar you know, I, I, he plays a great outfield, but he also plays a really good first base. So I think, you know, it, it, for him, knowing that he has that value attached to him, that he could play multiple positions, you know, that, that certainly will, will serve him uh, moving forward. 
and just a matter of getting it going a little bit better at the plate. And with Wilson, too, he's played everywhere this year. I mean, he's played at third, second, first, right, left. I mean, anywhere that they need him, he's available to go out there and, and give you some really good play. So um, I think for him, just, again, keep grinding and keep doing what you're called upon to do because, you know, those are the guys that get a chance to stick around for a long time. And especially when you're playing those, those multiple positions, and all three of those guys do that. Newhouse has played in left, second, and short, um, third. So, you know, th- those are guys that – you know, one day are going to get an opportunity no matter, you know, what level it is. They're going to continue to get the opportunity to climb and, and continue to, to, to try and, you know, get to the ultimate goal. You've already mentioned Segovia and the nine-game hit streak. Over the course of that hit streak, he raises his average from 189 to 253. So that average is, is a little bit more impressive than it actually is than when you really take a look at, at how he got to it. Uh, he was the maybe the prospect who opened up more eyes than anybody else throughout the entire organization with what he did in the first half uh, with the Timber Rattlers. It, it really looks like, especially recently, that uh, that bat is able to play at the Carolina League as well. Yeah, absolutely. He looks extremely polished, too. Uh, he's very young. He's one of the youngest players in this league. Uh, Feliciano, I think, actually was the youngest uh, when he was still on the active roster. But Segovia is down there, too. I think he's only 21 years old. But, um, you know, I, I actually thought that he would start here just in looking at what he did, uh, you know, in previous seasons in the Dominican Summer League and in rookie play and what have you. Um, so I was kind of surprised when he didn't start here. And then, obviously, he showed that he deserved to be here, hitting 347 or whatever it was in Wisconsin. I think he had 70 hits in 50-some-odd games. I mean, he, he really was lighting it up there in low A. So, uh, and he came out on fire up here. I mean, his first week, I would really thought he had a chance to be the, the, the player of the week in this league. Um, he had a, a, a right at the tail end of that, maybe went over over five or something, or over four in a game. So he kind of took himself out of that running. But he's beginning to get back to where he was when he first arrived. Hits a lot of line drives uh, in this series that we played at Bowie's Creek. He just continued to pepper the ball up the middle. So he's not trying, you know, to become pull happy, just keeping it simple, going up the middle, right center. And and I think when you have a guy that's that young and it already sort of understands that, I think you begin to to, to really you know understand that it, that's a special talent and has the ability anyway to become a special talent. And in, with him playing in the outfield, too, like I mentioned earlier with Oro Malloy now in center, Aguilar in right, and him in left, it's a really talented outfield that doesn't really let anything get by them. And he plays a really great lefty in center here before Oro Malloy had arrived, moving Aguilar to right or left, depending on the situation. But uh, now that he's in left and it's kind of taken that over, he's, he's been great out there. And it's, it's fun to see because I think that they have right now the way that it's set up defensively and then offensively, too, with the balance of the lineup. I, I think they could really do some special things here in the second half. They just kind of got to get going here pretty soon. Let's jump over to a couple of the pitchers, and a lot of people in the Milwaukee area are keeping a close eye on uh, Cam Regner, especially him being a, a Beloit product, just uh, not that far from Milwaukee. He was carrying a sub-1 ERA into very late May, came back to earth just a bit in June with a 3.56 ERA, but, I mean, that's uh, there, there's nothing wrong with a 3.56 ERA. Mm-hmm. Even, as, you know, his, even his last start, which was one of his worst starts of the year, he gives up four runs and six and the third innings. If that's your worst start, I think just about anybody will take that. He had a six-run effort, four earned in four innings in late May. But overall, uh, he just continues to put up really good numbers, and he's a bit of a surprise as well. What have you seen from him? Well, he continues to, to, to really excel in, in the way that he's locating his fastball on the, the, the outer third, inner third. He's picking corners well, but he's also backing it up with his slider. He's keeping guys off balance. Um, even actually going back to that start you mentioned where it was, he had the four runs, six and a third or whatever it was. He actually had, had only given up one over the first 
uh, uh, five innings of that game, I think it was. Or No, I'm sorry, he was scoreless over five, allowed a home run to start the sixth inning, a solo shot to a guy who's hitting 187 this year and happened to hit his third home run of the season. That made it 2-1, to one, and then he unfortunately just ran into some bad luck. The following frame gave up a few, and in all it was four runs. So he still had the, the same type of, he was the same guy that he had been all year, the guy that was keeping his ERA below one, leading all of minor league baseball in ERA. Uh, at that particular moment coming in to start yesterday, he was uh, second to the league in ERA, and still is, because ERA is slightly above two. Um, but one of the things that um, they're trying to do with him, I think, mechanically, and they made the adjustment, from what I understand in talking to the position coach Bob Malaki, uh, is that they're, they're trying to keep him centered a little bit more with his body, meaning that uh, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, pitching um, around, I think, his head, the way that they have him centered now, as opposed to having it sway or pull, uh, trying to keep his body more centered as he uh, as he goes through his windup and, and set and, and just overall his throwing uh, to the plate. He said that it was really tough at first to learn, but once he began to really kind of learn the, the, the process of it and develop kind of a muscle memory for it, uh, Cam said that he he really started to, to excel with it. And he said that one of the things that it's allowed him to do is, uh, well, number one, control on the out, outer third and inner third and on the corners, but also kind of uh, to limit his misses to an area where he intended to throw the ball, I think is how he said it to me, in the sense that if he's going to miss, miss where he originally intended the pitch to go. So if they want to go low and away, uh, whatever it is, that he's not missing up and away, and that he's not missing the opposite of wherever that is or over the plate. It's trying to limit his misses to where he's supposed to put the ball to begin with, and with that you're going to get more called strikes or keep inducing weak contact content uh, contact excuse me which is what he's trying to do too is he's trying to pitch the contact early but weak contact it's kind of like his goal uh, in each at bat that he takes he's an extremely hard competitor i mean he, he is fierce and yesterday when even when he was struggling there late in that game in that start right at the very end of his start um and, and toward the end of the game uh he was up there battling and it's tough to pull a guy out sometimes like that because you know that they're trying to do everything they can to succeed it just happened to be that uh, things got away late unfortunately but uh, he's been the same guy all year. It's just, um, you know, as long as he's he's getting weak contact early, he's he's going to be great. One of the more intriguing prospects in the Brewers organization is Phil Bickford. He came over in a trade, has had some off-field stuff, has had injuries. He's finally out on the field. It seems like he's pitching about once a week. Uh, isn't pitching a ton when he goes out there. He only has one outing this year where he's thrown more than uh, 29 pitches. What's the, what's kind of the approach that the organization is taking right now with Bickford? I think they're using him in. You know, I, I, I think that um, maybe the stuff off the field is um, weighed on him a little bit in the last couple of years. He's a really easygoing guy, I can tell you that, and I don't think that anything that's happened off the field or outside the game or whatever um, has uh, uh, maybe slowed him down in, in how he sees himself and how he sees you know, uh, his role, I guess, out there. Um, clearly, though, his role has changed a little bit. He's not starting anymore. He is pitching in relief. Um, you know, I, I think the stuff that he had in years past is still sort of there. He's a little bit in the low 90s right now uh, with his fastball, but he seems to be spotting it well. Um, you know, I think he, he hides the ball well, too, um, the way that he throws it, it, it. I don't know if it's like an invisible ball, but I think sometimes it acts like that sometimes. But, um, you know, I, I think that, again, they're limiting him. I, I think just kind of easing him back into the, the process of it all, the day-to-day of it. 
and uh, trying to think also to see maybe what they have. You know, I, I, obviously the numbers were incredible. The stuff that he had done in the Giants system, you know, coming up advanced day especially and going on to Brevard County. But uh, there was something, I think, about that transition from the California League to the Florida State League that maybe didn't uh, click with him initially. And that might have uh, slowed him down a little. So I think they're trying to make sure that they can get him back into the mindset that maybe that he had before and, and get him back to the, where he was. And, um, yeah, I think at this point just trying to, 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 to give him a lot of opportunities to succeed, put him in situations where he can go out there and do well and, uh, and build off of that. Braden Webb's another guy who's been with the team all year. It seems like he takes the ball every fifth day. His first six starts, he gives up multiple runs in every start. And then from uh, his start on May 18th on, he's only given up multiple runs twice. What's clicked for this guy? Is he, I mean, you just look at his day by day, and it's it's pretty clear when all of a sudden things did start going well for him. Yeah, you know, it happened after they, they had him skip a start. You know, they, they transferred him off the roster just briefly. Um, they, they had him skip a start, I think it was June 3rd, somewhere around there. It was early June, I think it was. And, um, or I might have been, uh, I might be getting my dates mixed up. But it was uh, about halfway through the first half, I guess. And uh, from there, I mean, he was just lights out. And I think it was an opportunity for him at that point to kind of let things slow down. Um, not get too far ahead of, of what he was trying to go out there and do every fifth day, like you said, uh, as he's taking the ball as a starter out there. Um, his curveball is electric, and I, I'd say, I think that it's the combination of his fastball, which lately has been hitting 96, 97, it seems like, with, with, with a, a high frequency. Um, but it's, it's the curveball that he backs up with it, too. I mean, it's got a true 12-6 kick to it. And it, it can be nasty, especially when he's locating it well. And he's located for, for strikes well this last few. Uh, but he, his stuff is, is, is probably right now uh, the best on, on this staff. I mean, just when you, you watch him go out there, I mean, he, he's got a great command uh, of, of the game, a great feel for it. He works incredibly fast. And he's a guy, too, I think, that builds off of momentum. When, when he starts to feel good and he's getting results, he continues just to build and build and build off of that. And uh, like you said, I mean, the, the numbers speak for themselves. He's, he's, he's even great. And uh, I, it's going to be fun to see how he develops in the second half and uh, to see him continue to, to build and get better with those pitches because, again, it's, it's just electric, the stuff that he's got. Greg, for folks that want to check out your broadcast on an every-night basis, what's the best way to uh, listen and or uh, especially watch it for the home games? Yeah, well, if you're not here locally, and I understand that uh, a lot of the folks out there probably aren't, uh, you can find us at online. Look for us at carolinamudcats.com. You can listen to us via TuneIn Radio, uh, all of that for free. You can also watch us uh, via MILB.TV. That's a paid subscription, but uh, the staff here does a great job putting on a good show through that. That's all through the uh, the, the MILB.TV broadcast and, uh, and setup, and uh, that includes the radio broadcast and the live video here, TV style. So it's a pretty good setup. Greg, encourage people to uh, follow you on Twitter as well. Again, uh, at Greg Young Jr., Jr.'s JR. Uh, as always, appreciate the time. I should say uh, you guys played a road game today. You traveled back on a bus, and uh, you are talking to me after all that on when you don't get that many evenings off. So thank you so much for being uh, so gracious with your time. Hey, my pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Greg Young joining us on the program, and we do certainly appreciate him taking some time with us talking a bit about uh, the Carolina Mudcats and what they've been able to do so far this year. All right, here's what's coming up this week for the Brewers. On Monday, they start a three-game series against the Minnesota Twins. So it's the old border battle that probably people like us in the media make a bigger deal of than actually is. But you know what? I, I say that. They're... 
there's a lot of Brewers fans out there, especially old school Brewers fans going back to uh, the American League days that uh, these Twins games mean a lot and they wish they would play the Twins more often. So there is certainly something to be said about that. A little bit of a different schedule for this series. Monday's game is going to start at 7-10, but then 3-10 starts on both Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday, the day before the 4th of July. Wednesday, the 4th of July. So kind of some holiday timing there for those two games. And uh, so that's what's going to be uh, taking place over uh, those three days. And then as we talk right now, and we've been talking for so long about the Brewers having the best record in the National League. Uh, the Braves able to leapfrog over them with the results of Sunday. So it's going to be a matchup of the two best records in the National League as it sits right now. We'll see where it is once the series gets started in a few days. But the Brewers welcome in the Atlanta Braves for a four-game series that will start on Thursday night. 7-10 on Thursday and Friday. 3-10 on Saturday and then a 110 start will be coming up on Sunday. And that is it for this week's edition of Brewers Extra Into the Podcast, powered by WTMJ Mobile. Again, a thank you to my guests, Kyle Lesneski and Greg Young. A thank you to you for uh, sticking with us and listening to the entire program. As always, if you need to reach out to me, you can do so by tweeting at me, at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air, or you can drop me an email, matt.pauley, at WTMJ.com. Have a uh, happy and uh, enjoy enjoy your 4th of July. Be safe on your 4th of July as well, whether the safety is around alcohol or the safety is around fireworks. Just be safe on the 4th of July, and we will talk to you again next week for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to a home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.